reading verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. The first section is going to be up on the screen. We'll read that together, and then I will finish on my own reading the second part. So I'll invite you. This is, this is God's word to us. And like I did last week, at the end of this, I will say, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord. And if you're comfortable, you can say, thanks be to God. We're just reminding ourselves that this is God's voice in our life. So here is God's word this morning. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you you've revealed the Father to us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're at work in our midst right now. Even though we can't see you, it doesn't mean you're not present and mediating the very presence of the fullness of God right in here, right now. Lord, wherever we may be in life, some of us are coming and we do believe the things we've been singing and, and reading and praying. And others of us may be questioned. Some of us may not believe it at all. Thank you that you are a gracious God who pursues us. And for whatever reason, we are here today. So we ask that you would do what only you can do, which is dig into, uh, reach into the deepest recesses of our being and grab hold of us. Let us know indeed that you are God and the beauty of who you are, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So we started last week, we looked at this big idea that the word of life reorients us for life in the world, and that is kind of a capstone somewhat of what John's going to do in this letter of 1 John. So today, here's the question, uh, do you want to walk in light? So this is somewhat rhetorical, you can answer if you want to. Do you want to walk in light? And it, oh, people, some people are actually going to respond to that. All right, so, all right, so if you're going to respond, I'll ask a follow-up then. What do you mean by that? Whoever said, yeah, they want to walk in light. Like, when you say you want to walk in light, what does that even mean to you? Jesus. It means you. <laughs> Jesus. 
Jesus the Bible prayer. One of those three answers, right? That's... <laughs> Do you have like a, like you have a concept when you, he, when you hear it or when you say, hey, I want to walk in light, is there something that comes to your mind about that? Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Accountability? Okay, all right. Other thoughts? Authenticity. Walking in the light is Authenticity. Yeah, yep, yep. The physical side, yeah, manifests itself like as we're talking metaphorically or spiritually or however you want to say it. Yeah, where am I going? So this, this is a, con- I mean, I think religious people obviously use this idea of walking in the light, but I think it's, it's not just religious. I think other people mean similar kind of ideas. And John is taking this philosophical but very practical idea, and I think he says in essence this. This is kind of where we're going to go for the next few weeks. We walk in the light as we fellowship with God who is light. So how, how, do we, how does John set the stage for us walking in the light? You walk in the light by fellowshipping with God who is light. So fellowship is a big idea in this, in this letter, in this sermon that John wrote. And we talked a little bit about it last week. Fellowship, again, here is used for that, it's that word koinonia, that Greek word maybe you've heard of, meaning uh, association or communion, some kind of deeper relationship. So he says walking in the light is about relationship. It's about connection. This is the starting point. It's actually the ending point, and it's the every point along the way. It's connection first with God. He says in verse 6, if we, have, if we say we have fellowship, this is chapter 1, verse 6, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we, we lie. It's an oxymoron. You can't walk in the light and have fellowship with him. Walking in darkness, whatever that that means shows we are not connected to or we're not in fellowship with him no matter what we say. If we walk in darkness and we say we have fellowship with him, according to John, we're a liar, either knowingly or unknowingly. I think more often unknowingly. We're lying to ourselves. We can be and we can talk like the most religious person in the world and be the darkest presence in the room. Disconnected from him, misrepresenting him. Um, He's going to describe this more as we move forward throughout the next chapters. But man, have you experienced that? Have you been that? Fran and I uh, are a few of... The people in our family just finished watching, watching a horrific miniseries that I will not even tell you what it was. But it elevated so clearly. There were these massively religious figures who ended up being the most demonic figures. Right? You, you know those TV shows. You know those movies, right? But we know that personally. Yeah, John is kind of calling us out on this. Therefore, we walk in the light as we fellowship with God who is light. But this fellowship isn't just individual because he says in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. When we walk in the light, this fellowship connection is with him 
as we are fellowshipping and connecting with each other who are doing the same. Walking in the light requires fellowship with him ultimately, but it also requires fellowship with one another, with him. So how do you know if you're walking in the light, if you're fellowshipping and if you're connected, what are the indicators of that? How do I know if I'm not just saying I'm in the light, but I'm really in the darkness? What are the indicators of that? Well, I'm so very glad that you asked because this is what John is going to be talking about. What characterizes light dwellers versus night crawlers? Okay, and which one are we? Those who just think that they're walking in the light versus those who are actually walking in the light. Where are they? Who are they? And maybe more, even more so potentially, at least for me, is where am I? Even though I may be in the light in him, where am I doing this in parts of my life where I'm actually more of a night, night crawler? So maybe God wants to say something to us as we walk through this. All right, as we do this, we're going to look at probably over the next, I have three, but it probably, it may actually be four, four areas that illumine us as to what does it look like to walk in the light. And today we're just going to look at this first one, freedom from the darkness. This is our, the section we've already read. So what does it look like to walk in the light? It looks like freedom from the darkness. Okay, what does freedom from the darkness look like? We're going to look at these three areas today. Confession, forgiveness, and keeping. This is what John outlines for us as far as how it looks when you're walking in the light, when you're being freed from darkness, what does this life look like? And we've already, you've actually named some of those when we started. When, when I asked the question, confession, forgiveness, and keeping. So first, we start here, verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Sin is just another way of thinking about darkness. It is in opposition to God and goodness. That's how we're going to think about sin. I think that's how John is thinking about sin. It is the irritant of fellowship with him and with others. Sin is that irritant that causes friction and, and problems and unhealth and decay and breakdown in relationship. Part of walking in light is identifying the darkness in ourselves as actual darkness, as unhealth. What do we call this? Confession. This is kind of has a, it has a religious connotation, but it's a deep thing. It's, it's acknowledging the darkness as darkness, and it's acknowledging it in myself. Confessing that we have sin, darkness, is, is doing what? Well, according to John, it's agreeing with God, and it's agreeing with the reality of our circumstances that we are part of the problem in the world. Confession is saying, oh, yeah, I identify there's a problem in the world, and the problem is me. This is confession. And as we acknowledge specific sins, things we have done to spread darkness or hurt to others, as we start to acknowledge it, this is freedom. It doesn't feel like, especially before you cross that line, like you think about making the confession. It doesn't feel very free. But once you've made that confession, that sets the heart free. It begins to set it free from darkness. It clears the air. It clears the air with other people. It clears the air with God. And it humbles us and it, power, it powers us to be sincere and honest and authentic. Doesn't it? You don't have to pretend anymore once you get it out there. 
Right before he talks about our confessing, John has what sounds at first glance something out of, the con- out of context. He says in verse 7, if we have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What? what? If you have fellowship, the blood of Jesus, where in the world does that come from? What is, what is that all about? Well, this fellowship, this association he's referring to is one, it's around Jesus. It's not just any kind of fellowship. Because we, we can have all kinds of ways of connecting with each other, right? We, we, have, we have common interests. We have sports teams. We have political views. We have our occupation. All kind of stuff that can be good or bad. But there are ways to associate. By this walking in the light, as he's talking about it, fellowship with God involves a unique fellowship with each other around Jesus. And John explicitly calls out, it's the one, he's the one whose blood cleanses us, which is just a weird concept. But he's putting something out there as far as what it is that binds us together around Jesus. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. What does that mean? This will, this will get talked about a little bit more in a second. But before we get into like the deep theology of what this is, there's something just profoundly simple, I think that's important for us. If we live in ongoing relationship with others, we will keep needing to be cleansed. Why is that the case? Why why do you think it's the case? Is that the case for you? Or is it just the case for me? Maybe it's just the case for me. Do you need to keep receiving cleansing? Because, why? Because we keep sinning. I keep sinning. I keep doing things that fracture relationship. As much as I don't want to hurt my wife, I keep hurting her. The the darkness in us keeps affecting others. We keep needing to be cleansed. Therefore, what does it look like to walk in the light according to God? Unmask the self-righteousness. Let's just rip it off. Let's just get rid of it. Which, honestly, self-righteousness may be the darkest darkness of all. Like you do a wrong thing that's hurtful. That's, that's one level of brokenness. Pretending like you didn't, that's a whole other ballgame, isn't it? I think as we confess sin, the darkness begins to go away. Light comes into the room. And though it may be hard at first, I think, this is freedom. It's freedom for us and it's freedom for community. We get to get it out, not pretend like we and all the things that we do are are okay. It's okay to say it's really not okay, right? It's honesty, it's humility, and it is the way of the light. This is the way, this isn't like us just psych psychologizing the situation. This is what John is actually telling us. And it's the way to deeper fellowship with God and others by admitting you're pretty messed up in the fellowship. Okay, but it's not, how are you with this? You okay? Does this connect at all? Okay, thank you. Um, if it's not just that we acknowledge and confess which this is very healthy, right? It's living in reality. But it's not just that. Um, Living the light also is experiencing something. It's experiencing forgiveness, restoration, specifically knowing where and how that forgiveness comes to us. 
So that's got to be a part of this light thing. Living in the light is not us atoning. This has been a little insightful for me as I've processed this this week. Living in the light is not me atoning for my sin. It's not paying a price to regain fellowship. Our confessing is not atoning for anything. It's acknowledging wrong, bringing it to the light, but it doesn't make things right. My confession actually doesn't make anything right. Have you ever like apologized to someone? Like you did the hard thing and you went and apologized and it got rejected. Or it was, or it was said, okay, so this is one, I can't remember if I've told this one before. And I have said before, Fran, who's my wife, has had many mic drop moments in our relationship. And this was one of them. She, I was, I'm quick to apologize. And historically I have been, I probably still am. And so I was really quick. I'd done something to her and I went to apologize. And she's like, and and what I want from her, oh, I forgive you. It's okay. Don't worry about it. That's what I want immediately. And she's like, you're not doing this for me. You're doing this for you. (gasps) Oh, snap. (laughs) Right? This is it right here. Like, what am I doing? I'm thinking my confession is atonement. What do you mean? I've just atoned for my sins. No, no. That's not how it works. And I think this is helpful, like, practically in community. Let's remember that. Our confession is freeing. It's not atoning. And if someone can't accept your forgiveness right away, that's okay. Let's give space and time for each other, maybe, When dealing with with each other and confessing hurt we have brought to each other, it's a vulnerable risk. You're actually taking a risk. Confession does not guarantee restoration. Certainly doesn't guarantee it immediately. Doesn't guarantee restoration of the relationship with another person. What do you think of that? I I don't like this part, really. I don't like this part. I think coming to terms with this, though, is super helpful because I believe it helps magnify what we are offered in the gospel. Uh, As we remember this, that this is how it often works with each other, then we hear this from God, okay? This is verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In our confession before God, he guarantees an immediate response. There is no question of whether he will forgive. It's an immediate response. But that does not mean we are making things right with God by our confession. My admission of guilt is not making things right. According to this, he makes, things, he makes things right. He forgives. It's his activity towards me. Forgive, forgiveness from outside, it's not, it's not a self-forgiveness. It's not just forgiving each other, which is a beautiful thing to forgive each other. I guess it's a okay, good thing to forgive yourself, right? But that's not what he's talking about. This is forgiveness from him. He is, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all the darkness. Continually, he's faithful to do this. Sure, walking in the light looks like confession, but even more, it looks like us continually receiving his forgiveness and his cleansing. 
freely. Of course, God wants us, our sin eradicated. Like he wants the sin gone for us not to keep walking in the darkness. But he says, this is chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Deep forgiveness is not free It's free to the forgiven. It's free to the one who receives it, but it's very costly to the forgiver. It comes through, through, like deep forgiveness comes through deep suffering. It it always does. This is how it works in our lives, in our relationships. It comes by someone absorbing a wrong done or suffering the consequences of wrongs done rather than punishing the wrongdoer. That's what happens when we forgive. If you do an offense against me, me forgiving you is absorbing the wrong you've done and not taking my pound of flesh on you, from you, right? God is offering forgiveness. He does the work. Our confession, man, it's super important. It's very freeing. It doesn't atone. He has to atone. John says Jesus is our advocate. He is the propitiation of sin. He doesn't just offer a sacrifice, a a payment to make things right. He's the sacrifice. He's the payment to make things right. He is the sin appeaser. He's the sin eater for us. Forgiveness comes, there's a couple, there's many, many, many ways to think about this. This is one we need to dwell on constantly. I'm going to always be growing. Here's two ways to think about this, though. Forgiveness comes as he suffers the harm we inflict. This is the first part. Forgiveness comes as he suffers the harm. All right, think about Jesus' life. Let's look at him. When When did he have enough? Okay, when people started dismissing him. Was it like, oh, I'm going to cut you off? No, he kept going. All right, how about when they finally accused him wrongly of blaspheming God? Was that enough? No? Okay, so then they arrest him, and they, they, they wrongly accuse him in a court of law. Was that enough? It's like, okay, finally, that's enough. I'm done with you now. No. How about when they, when they whip him? How about when they put the crown of thorns on him? How about when they put the robe on him and mock him? Surely, come on, that's it. That's, you can't take any more. No. How about when they nail nails into his hands? How about before he breathes his last breath? What does he do the whole time? Father, forgive him. Forgive him. Where, where does his forgiveness end? Apparently it doesn't. He rose from the dead and he came back. After all that suffering, he still even came back. Forgiveness comes as he suffers. Even now, as we sin against him, he's pouring back out forgiveness. As I'm, as I'm sinning, he's forgiving. It's, it's as he suffers the harm we inflict. But then forgiveness also comes through the suffering he endures. This is a slight little difference. He was accomplishing some cosmic redemption through his death and his resurrection. It says in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
this is, this is like one of those, uh, there have been a million books probably written on propitiation, atonement. What is it that Jesus is doing? So I don't think we're ever going to plumb the depths, but we can keep looking into the brilliance of what this is. What is it? Well, as our representative, he suffered the justice we deserved on our behalf. He's the new man, and he stood at the head, and he suffered for us. He suffered for us what we deserve to suffer. You could say he swallows the curse of darkness in that. He was also making right what we broke through his suffering. This is, he is reversing the curse of darkness. Somehow in his death, he's not only absorbing it, he's turning it upside down. And then lastly, he's he's making us right by suffering the horrific wrong. There's something happening. He's returning blessing instead of a curse. So instead, when we curse him, we spit in, in, in his face, he returns grace and love and forgiveness. Blessing instead of the curse. So with all this, walking in the light looks like what? Well, acknowledging our darkness and not hiding and pretending to be more pure and holy than we actually are. And it's looking to Jesus alone as an advocate, as light, as the light. Anytime we move away from this, we're actually moving out of light into the shadows. Confession, forgiveness. As we live in light of this, this is freedom from darkness. I think it's genuinely freedom from darkness. It impacts how we live before God and how we live with each other and before others and move into a world that is dark. It actually affects how we move into darkness. Think of the potential this would have if we were free to to live with others this way in confessional honesty, in humility, not only with each other, definitely with each other, but then we carry this into the world to live with this kind of humility and extend the forgiveness that is constantly covering us. We extended it to others. Think about what that would look like. Right? Would that be a beautiful thing? I mean, is, is it painful? Sure it is. But is it beautiful? It's light. This is living in the light. And John tells us a little bit more of what it's going to look like in verse 3 of chapter 2. He says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, "I, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he, Jesus, walked. If we're walking in his, in his light, in this freedom, this forgiveness, if it's, if it's soaking us, if it's warming the heart, he will shape us into his image, which means his commands, his way of life, his character, his values begin to infect us like a good virus. It starts to take over our organism, which means we find them valuable. We find the character that he's soaking into us. We actually find him worth keeping. This thing's worth keeping. What is this keeping his commandments? What does that, what does this mean? Is it following the command? Is it doing the commands? Well, I, I, think, I think there's 
part of that, right? But, but he's talking more about, and, and we'll look at this, like in the next chapter especially, we're gonna, or later on in this chapter, we're going to see how he defines what the commands are. So we'll get into that actually next week. Uh, but the, the doing is actually a result. The doing is a manifestation of a deeper aspect of keeping. There's a deeper keeping that he's talking about. So this word here could mean retain in custody, so it could be holding on to, keeping watch over, guarding. Uh, this used several times in the New Testament. Here's, here's one. This is one where Jesus, the first miracle that Jesus did was the turning the water into wine at the marriage feast thing. They ran out of wine. And it says this. And he said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, they bring it out. But you have kept... There's the word, the good wine until now. What if you, you've held on to it? You, you've protected it. You've, you've, you've guarded it. This is, the, this is the idea of what keeping is. What does it mean to keep something? It, it means to hold on to it. It means to protect it. What things do you keep? What things do I keep? This is one of the fascinating things about moving we just, moved, we just moved from Loveland to, Fort Con- um, to Greeley. Um, we got rid of a lot of stuff. Not enough stuff. <laughs> we kept a lot of stuff. Why do you keep the things that you keep? I don't know, except for some reason I value it, right? I mean, I know certain things. Little pictures of my little babies when they were babies, and they're not babies anymore which is now electronic. I don't even need the stupid photographs. You keep things. Why? Because, because they're precious. For some reason, you value them. You want them. You, you, maybe you go so far as to even love them. Keeping his commandments is fundamentally valuing and considering beautiful him and what he values. The more we realize what is good, the more we realize what is, what is valuable to him the more we keep it, the more we want to keep it, the more we want to guard it, the more we desire it, right? I mean, the more I know what Fran thinks is beautiful, when she shoots me this one little email about, because Fran, Fran is, again, was my wife, she hardly ever asked for anything, but her birthday was last month, <laughs> sometime. I didn't miss it. I know when it was. It was last month, September. And she shot, she hardly ever says anything. She shot this one thing about, you know, I was thinking about an iWatch or an Apple Watch. Oh my gosh, she wants an Apple Watch. I'm so excited. She values an Apple Watch. I know, I hate val- Apple Watches. <laughs> but I now love Apple Watches because my wife loves an Apple Watch. I love it for her, right? When, you, when the one you love, the one that you see is most beautiful, when, the, when they value something, it becomes your value. Those who grow to keep his commandments, not just out of a duty, but out of a desire and attraction, John says, who are they? Like, how does that happen to you? Verse 5 and 6, John says it's those in whom the love of God is perfected and who abide in him. We grow to keep the commands to value them, not simply by gritting our teeth 
trying harder. Obey, <laughs> right? Let's just, God said do it, so I'm going to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't even value what he's saying, but I'm going to do it. I, I don't even know that you can keep his commandments that way. I mean, you may, you may do the right thing, but have you actually kept the commandment? I don't know. There's a question there. Rather, what he's saying here is it's, it's by having the love of God perfect us and by us abiding and resting in him. It's by sitting in the light, honestly confessing where we have not kept the commandments and then remembering and accepting that Jesus kept the commandments for me and he is keeping me in his love. He's forgiving me. Like sitting in this does something to us. This reshapes us. Has to, doesn't it? It reshapes our values that results in one step at a time walking in the way that really kind of starts to look like Jesus. But that only happens when we're consuming and being consumed by the forgiveness and the love that he has to offer us. Father, as we process this, as we think about this, as we encounter you, as we listen to your story, your, your love, your character, what it is, who you are, is you are light. What does that mean? How do we sit in your light? As we do that, please affect us, move into us, overtake us, overwhelm us, keep us, hold us, and in so doing, remake us more and more into your image, Jesus, not only, not only for our good and for the good of this community, but also for the good of us moving into the world to live in the light, to live as light, and to shine that light so that others might come to know the goodness of who you are. We ask this all in your name. Amen. So this is why we do, again, what we do at the end of our services, which is come to the table. We call it communion. Some people call it Eucharist. It's a time for us to not just hear the word of God's grace, but to touch it, to smell it, to eat it. It's a gift. If you, think you've, if you think you haven't done enough to come to the table and receive grace, then you're misunderstanding grace. The only way you come to this table is to confess, I don't deserve it, and to receive what he has to offer. On the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it again in remembrance of me. Because whenever we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death and his life and his light to each other, to ourselves, and ultimately even to the watching world. So, fathers, we come to the table to eat bread and to drink the juice. We ask that it would be 
a very real reminder and even the Holy Spirit that you would do something special in this moment, that you would feed us this unconditional love and forgiveness and grace that's been purchased by Jesus's sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you and ask that you would change us as a result of consuming you and being kept by you. We ask this all in your name. Amen.